Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. More exciting news, I've recently launched Zibby's Picks book subscription service. Four times a year, so every three months, I'll send you a new fantastic book that I think you will love. So just go to zibbyowens.com, and it's actually zibbyowens.com slash swag, and sign up for a book subscription in either fiction, memoir, nonfiction slash parenting, children's book, middle grade fiction, and I'll send you just fantastic books, and it will be great. And I also have gift options available if you want to give this to another book lover in your life. So please check it out. Tell friends and start subscribing. Thanks so much to my sponsor, Libro FM. Libro FM Audiobooks lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including many New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies, but you're going to be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. You can even choose which local bookstore you'd like to support, which is so cool. Listeners of my podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm, ro.fm and enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. With every time you listen to an audiobook, now you can be proud that you're supporting a local bookstore. And the best part is that I have my own playlist on Libro FM, which is so cool. So the books that have been on my podcast and that I'm recommending are now in my own playlist. If you go to Libro FM slash playlists, you can find it, which is so great. I'm excited to be here today with Fiona Davis, the best-selling author of The Dollhouse, The Address, The Masterpiece, and her latest book, The Chelsea Girls. A graduate of the College of William and Mary and the Columbia Journalism School, Fiona worked as an actress in the theater before becoming an editor, freelance journalist, and then a historical fiction novelist. She currently lives in New York City. So welcome to Fiona. Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here. Oh, yay. So I was just away with two girlfriends and I had brought a big stack of books with me. I mean, I was gone for two days. I brought six books, which is like, (laughs) (laughs) perfect. one of them, the one on the top was yours. And my good girlfriend was like, oh my gosh, that book hasn't even come out yet. And I was like, she had read all your other books and was so excited that I was interviewing him. So my friend, my friend, Allison. Yeah. (laughs) Makes my day. That's wonderful. So I was like, well, do you want to read mine? She's like, no, I won't finish it. And then, you know, I can't get it on my Kindle for a while. So anyway, you have <laughs> fans everywhere, as you know. Aww. So tell me about the Chelsea Girls, what this book of yours is about and what inspired you to write it. Sure. So each of my books are, are situated around a landmark New York City building. And the building for this one is, of course, the Chelsea Hotel. And it was it, what it's about is about female friendship and the theater in New York City and politics, which is kind of something new that I'm layering in. And it takes place in 1950 from the point of view of an actress and a playwright, both women, who are trying to mount a play on Broadway during the McCarthy era. And that was a very interesting time for actors in New York City. And I I did a lot of research and learned all about it. And The Chelsea Girls has everything that my other books are known for, which is a couple timelines. It's set in an iconic New York City building. And there's a couple major twists. For sure. (laughs) I did not see one of those coming in particular. Oh, good. That's what I like to hear. Yeah, I really did. And I was trying to figure it out, but I did not. (laughs) So why the Chelsea Hotel? And have you been there? When was the first time you went there? How did you pick it as your next book site? 
Yeah, sure. So I'd been to the Chelsea Hotel a long time ago, and I remember popping into the lobby and being kind of intimidated by it. There's a lot of artwork. There's some quirky people. It's just got this kind of wild history of being a place where artists and painters and musicians and actors and playwrights all lived. And it it has a reputation for being very eccentric and kind of quirky. It was founded in the 1880s as a, a co-op, but went bankrupt and then became a hotel. And, and you know, some of the people who've lived there, it, it's an incredible list. Dylan Thomas, Janis Joplin, Leonard Cohen. There's just a, an incredible list of people through the ages who've lived there. And so, in fact, it was kind of intimidating at the thought of choosing it. But the more I researched, the more I realized it was really the perfect setting for this book because it was a hotbed of political intrigue in the 50s. And so it it kind of made the perfect setting for people dealing with McCarthyism. And did you know anybody, like when you were doing your research, did you talk to anybody who was affected by sort of the blacklisting and the magazines that came out listing people's names? Like, do you have firsthand experience with that? Or was this more research that was in newspapers and things like that? It's such a good question. The whole idea for kind of focusing on that era came from an interview I did with an actress who was 99 the last time I talked to her. She passed away last year at the age of 99. And her name was Virginia Robinson. And I had interviewed her because I thought maybe in one of the earlier books I might have an actress. And I ended up not doing it for that book because I knew I had to save it because this was gold. We were talking about her time in the USO on tour in World War II. And her level of detail was incredible. She talked about how, you know, her soldier boyfriend would bring her good and plenty or how they craved orange juice. And then she started talking about being an actress in New York in the 1950s. And she started using phrases like red channels and loyalty oaths. And she became incensed when I didn't know what she was talking about. And I realized there was this whole level of the McCarthy era that I didn't know that affected New York City actors that was really more of kind of a gray list than a blacklist, which is what we know of from the film industry and Trumbo. And and so from talking to her, and I, I went back to her a few times to keep on interviewing her. And again, she just had such vivid memories and her anger was just as as strong today as it was back then at the injustice that was being done towards artists and entertainers. And I I went on to interview two other people who were directly affected then. And and just to jump in for a second, in case people, like I was not familiar with this either. So basically what was going on at the time was that people in the theater and other industries were being unfairly picked out as communists for doing things like attending one single march or signing one piece of paper or something, and then blasted publicly for their affiliation with communism, and then sometimes losing their jobs and things like that. Is that a good... Yeah, exactly. That perfectly sums it up. There was a, a publication called Red Channels that if you got named in that, and it would list your name and then all your supposed offenses, no one would hire you. And and it was completely unjust because it was completely, you know, a terrible thing to do. Because keep in mind, even being a communist was perfectly legal back then. It wasn't illegal. And and a lot of these people were just picked out because, for example, Lee Grant was an actress I interviewed. And she was nominated for an Oscar for her first film role in 1951. But then she refused to testify against her husband before the House on american Activities Committee and did not work for 10 years. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, and I, she, would have, I would have liked to be like, you know, a fly on the wall in their household for those 10 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, that's tough. That, I mean, anyway, whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was just very arbitrary and really unfair. Mm-hmm. And then, so the context of the political intrigue made this particularly interesting, but also, even without that, the female friendship relationships and the siblings and the mothers and daughters. I mean, this is like a book. I mean, it could have been today with some other political issue going on. And I loved how you talked about Maxine and Hazel's relationships, the two women, the famous actress and the playwright. And in one scene, you have Hazel telling Maxine, you know, I didn't write back. I pulled away from our friendship and I'm so sorry. I felt dull next to your glamorous lifestyle. Like I was treading water while you performed tricks from the high dive. I was jealous, I suppose. So talk to me more about this aspect of women's friendship, theirs in particular, but what made you want to dive into that relationship dynamic? Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, I think it's interesting when you're, you're, you're in the theater industry or in, in, I came to New York as an actress in my 20s. And so you go to auditions and there's just, a, you know, I, I was a, a tall blonde and I'd go to auditions and there'd be a line of 20 tall blondes you know, all going for the same part or the same commercial. And it was just insane. But luckily I fell into a theater company called Willow Cabin and we put on three shows a year and we did everything. We hung the lights, we made the costumes, we went to thrift stores and bought things if we couldn't, you know, make them. And it was just this fantastic group of people and the exact opposite of that, where everybody was pulling together and it was all to put on a show and, you know, one of our shows was went to Broadway and was nominated for a Tony. And it was just, they're all still my best friends today. Oh, no way. And That's so, so nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's really the opposite of that. But I, but you could see as you go out for auditions, just the the nature of the beast is that it's, you know, you're you're competing with people. And so I was interested in in kind of looking into that. And these two women who both started out as actresses, but one becomes a playwright. And how does that power dynamic change? I feel like people don't often, especially women, there is this sort of comparison that goes on a lot between women with each other, sort of a measuring up that's constantly taken, whether it's your body or your clothes or your life, that people you know, they, maybe they don't feel good about it. And some women obviously do this much more than others, and which I think comes mostly from insecurity and whatever else. But, you know, it's often not addressed in the way that you did so beautifully here. And that, you know, even that Hazel would have the self-awareness to know, like, you know what, I, or Maxine would have the self-awareness. They both have <laughs> enough self-awareness to sort of take stock of their relationship and be able to apologize for it, right? Yes, uh, yeah. And and to go with the flow is is circumstances change and realizing that a friendship is fluid. And so there are some times that, you know, one person is kind of pulling their weight more than the other. It's almost like a marriage, I think, a long-term friendship where you go through cycles and you're really connected and then things come up and you're off doing other things. But having that history of these experiences is what really is what really bonded them. Do you think that men do the same thing? I mean, I feel like men, this is just my two cents. I don't know. From what the people that I've (laughs) come into contact with, men are more likely to be like, oh, you know, that guy has that great job and I want that. And whereas women won't say that at all. They'll just be like, I don't think she needs to come to lunch. You know. (laughs) I do think men have a different bond that that I think in some ways can be even deeper than than a woman's without all the 
the talking and the the angst. You know, I think some some men just have bonds that have have guide them through all their lives, and and there's less of the kind of up and down yeah. that sometimes women do. It's true. Maybe it's our natures. I'm not sure. <laughs> you wrote so poignantly about Hazel losing her brother, Ben, in the war. And I was just wondering, and you don't have to answer this, but if you've gone through any personal losses yourself, which have made you more sensitive to sort of that feeling of loss and grief. You know, I've been so lucky in that my family is still around and I'm close with my brother and my parents are still around. I'm very happy. But for me, I probably draw on a period from about five years ago when I went through a divorce. And that same year, my dog died. And there was just a a lot of loss within a short period of time, this kind of cascade of loss. And I really had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and, and how what I wanted out of life after taking care of other people for a long time, you know, now what? And so for me, I think that that's what I tap into that, that sense of kind of coming home at the end of the day to an empty apartment and not even the the dog being able to come and greet me. Oh, that's such a sad <laughs> visual. That's just so sad. <laughs> and so it, so it, it even though it wasn't a loss that, you know, everybody was still around and it was just, it was a change in family dynamics. And that was what, in a way, it, it kind of woke me up in a, in a really wonderful way. So, and, and for, I think for Hazel, losing her brother puts her in the spotlight where they're the, this family that is all about being entertainers. And he was supposed to be the, the prince of Broadway. And so now she is supposed to take up that mantle. And how does she do that? And you brought in their relationship with the mother, because the mother, of course, had like idolized the son, has been more pushing Hazel to take his place in a way. And you had a great quote, Maxine is now commenting on Hazel's relationship with her mother. And you say, your mother is one of those people who comes across as selfless and caring, but only so others will recognize and laud her martyrdom. She craves control. So tell me more about that. Yeah, I love how you picked out these lines that are so key. I, you, you, you're exactly, you're honing in exactly where you should. Yeah, for me, I, I think for me, I am a caretaker. And so, you know, I like to take care of everybody. And, and, and as I've gotten older, I've realized, oh, that's not my issue. I, I can't take care of everybody. I can't control everything. So I was interested in exploring that in the book. And so, you know, how do you live in the moment and, and how do you enjoy what you have knowing that you don't know what's going to happen down the road? And so for me, that I think that's where that comes in. And, and also, I think I've been able to channel that need to control into writing books where you do control the plot and you do control all the characters and you decide if they're happy or sad or if they live or die. And, you know, it's very empowering to write a book because you're living in this whole other world that's all yours to play with. And so, yeah, in the book, I, I, I like making the mother, she's not very sympathetic, um, <laughs> but, she, <laughs> but just exploring the things that I'm interested in through these characters is what I try to do. That's so interesting to say that writing is a way of exerting control in a, in a world that feels out of control. I mean, it seems obvious, but I haven't heard it said like that before. And it's so true, right? If you really want to affect change, just make it up, really, right? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. 
Have you ever tried writing a play? I feel like you had such a, you just described Hazel's writing this play, her, her plays. And I mean, it, obviously writing a book has some of the similar things of, you know, sitting down and the typewriter and the hotel and all the rest of it. But I was just wondering if you had tried to write a play or if you want to write the play, The Wartime Sonata, which she writes, like, do you want to now go and try to write that? <laughs> I love that. You know, I I see a lot of plays. And so I have such respect for great playwrights and how they do what they do. And I think having watched a lot of plays, I can see how you build tension and, and how dialogue is so important. But I don't know if I could write one because I'd miss writing about all the behind the scenes stuff of what the room looks like and being able to show the character's interior through the exterior in a way, which you can't do. A play is just stripped down. Mm-hmm. And so, no, that that intimidates me like crazy, the thought of doing that. And it was so much fun to write about a play in the book without having to write the play because it could be whatever I want, you know, I could kind of layer in whatever I wanted. And I think it's kind of a parallel situation to when you first start writing a book and it's this great idea, right? And it's going to be amazing and it could go anywhere. And then as you start writing it, you have to get specific and suddenly it gets harder and harder. And so to have this kind of bubble of wartime sonata of this amazing play, which I didn't have to write, that was. <laughs> so what is it like when you write books? How, what's your process like? And how long does it take for each of your books? And where do you like to write? Yeah, so I am a plotter. I come from a family of engineers and, you know, you, you, you figure it all out beforehand. And so that's what I do. I do a lot of research for about three months to figure out who the characters should be and really get to know the setting, which is so important and almost like another character in the book. And then I write a first draft and then I revise it, I'd say anywhere from nine to 11 times of going through and, and give, showing it to my agent and to my editor and, and really deepening it. But I, I tend to know where I need to go. And because it's complicated and there's two timelines and an element of mystery, I really have to know where I'm headed in order to pull that off and not waste time. I write about a book a year at the moment. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> What's the hardest part of that for you? Like what moment is the hardest? I think the hardest is after you've written the first draft and it feels like, oh, yeah, I figured this out. And then you get feedback and you realize, no, you've got a long way to go. (laughs) And having been a former journalist, I really love a good editor. I love getting feedback. I love having that input of realizing, oh, yeah, what if I did this? But it's a lot of work. And every book, it's still a lot of work. Do you already have your next site picked out for your next book? Or have you started writing your next book already? Or is it done? Yeah, is it done? <laughs> no, no. The, the first draft is done. It's set at the New York Public Library. Oh, no way. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. And it's, I learned that in my research, I learned that in when it first opened in 1911, for about 20 years, the superintendent lived in the building in a seven-room apartment in the public library with his family, with his wife and three kids. And so I've created a superintendent who's a fictional one, and it's from the point of view of the superintendent's wife, Hmm. who in 1913, and she kind of gets caught up in, she wants to go to journalism school, which the Columbia Journalism School had just opened at that moment. And she gets kind of caught up in the new bohemia of Greenwich Village and the changes that were kind of happening among women at that time that were really dynamic and kind of out there. And then it also takes place from the point of view of this risk-averse librarian in 1993 who's trying to put on an exhibit 
of rare books. And both timelines deal with book thefts and these rare books and manuscripts that are going missing. And so you're trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Where, where are these thefts happening? How are they happening? And these two men who are really striving to make their mark. That sounds so good. Do you have a, do you have a, a working title for it? Yep, it's called the Lions of Fifth Avenue. Ooh, that's great. I'm on, so I'm on the yeah. library council there. So I always try to. I've, I started getting involved right after college. I was a young lion, and now I'm a, on the library council. And every year I chair. Oh. I, I I've been chairing the library lunch for the last four years or so, which I love doing. And I they always have these fantastic panelists with David Remnick of the New Yorker. And so I'm I'm a oh. huge fan. My first wedding was at the New York Public Library. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I had no <laughs> 2005. idea. Yeah. So I'm a and big. And you're actually uh, called the lions. You're actually called the lions. The young lions. When I was young, the young then I was uh, kicked out yes. because I'm too old. So now they moved me onto the library council, which is just like another committee. And anyway, I'm a huge fan of libraries and particularly the New York Public Library. So I'm excited to that your next book is that. That's, a, that's, that's awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. They and they've been wonderful. They've given me a behind the scenes tour. I've been able to see where the old apartment was. I even have, there's something called the Allen Room where if you have a book contract, you can get go in there and work and they deliver books right to you. So I have books on typhoid and, and all that. It's just a remarkable place and they've been wonderful. Oh, that's great. I have one more question about the theater aspect and then I just want to hear any general advice you have. But I feel like there have been a series of threats to the theater community over the years. The McCarthyism, I feel like the AIDS crisis in the 80s was just a huge, you know, obviously huge threat. What do you think now is the biggest threat to the theater world? Oh, that's such a good question. I I think one of the issues is that there's so many big spectaculars going on. And so there's, and they're all of, of films and things that we already know. So it's just recycling material for the biggest bang for your buck to lure in tourists. And, and, and the, so there's not much behind them. They're kind of thin. On the other hand, though, it really is almost like a golden age of theater going on right now, where it's really hard to get space if you're trying to mount a show because there's so many options. There's so many plays and musicals going on. And you have some amazing young playwrights like Lucas Noth and Martina Mayok and, and who are doing these incredible plays and they're young and smart. You have Manhattan Theater Club and Playwrights Horizons. And so there's all this stuff percolating and it's new voices who uh, they have something to say and they're, they're not coming from the, the old traditional theater, which was, you know, older white guys talking about whatever. These are young, smart, diverse playwrights who are saying something new. And to me, that that's just really exciting. That is exciting. I feel like, just to answer my own question, I feel like the biggest threat is people's lack of attention and the distractions from sort of technology and phones. And I loved the introduction to the Tonys this year. Did you watch the Tonys? That hilarious little, you know, song and dance number at the beginning. So funny. So I feel like at least they're aware that, you know, and trying to tackle that particular challenge right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's certainly not for a lack of fabulous content in, in the theater world. That's for sure. So what advice can you give to aspiring authors who want to be the next you? <laughs> ah, you know, I, I would say write what you want to read, which I know 
um, people say all the time. But when I started writing The Dollhouse, my first book, I knew I wanted to do it in two timelines because those are the books I love. And I knew I wanted some mystery and some clues because that's what I love. If I'd known how hard that was, (laughs) I would have never, never attempted it. But I'm so glad I did. And it was a real learning curve. And and I, I learned a lot from doing that. And I think the other thing is it's okay to live your life first before you become a writer. You know, I'm, I'm in my, my fifties, I'm not in my twenties. And I'm so glad that the success is coming now because A, I can appreciate it. And B, I feel like I have something to say. If I were in my twenties, I just wouldn't have the life experience to tap into. And, and so I encourage anyone who's thinking about being a writer, don't, don't worry if you haven't been doing it and you know since you were 18 it's okay to to start late I literally just interviewed Joanne Ramos, who wrote The Farm, a novel that came out this summer. Oh, yes, I have that. It's on my oh, TBR Oh, it's really list. good. Yeah. It's really, really okay. good. Anyway, I literally interviewed her about an hour ago, and we had the same conversation at the end because I was saying that everyone I'm interviewing, I'm not interviewing that many people in their 20s or even really early 30s, right? Like, I feel like there must be something about this stage of life where great content comes from or the wisdom or whatever. Anyway, we were literally just having the same same thing. And so your advice is, that's the advice of the day. <laughs> that's so um, good. I'm glad I'm tapping into the theme. <laughs> the theme of my morning this summer day. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I feel like I need to have an event now with you, and maybe you've already done this, and Julie Satow, who wrote The Plaza. And then you could have like the Chelsea Hotel oh. and The Plaza sort of dynamic oh, of the conversation. Oh, but, I love that. Yeah. And, yeah. and how fantastic that book is just incredible. And the research she did is, I mean, I've had so many people say to me, Hey, have you heard of this book? Cause you should write about the widows. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, maybe I'll get you guys. Maybe we'll get that in the works as well. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything you do to connect readers and, and authors. It, it means so much. And it's just so much fun to watch your success. You've Aww. been you've been exploding, which is fantastic. Thank you. That's so nice of you to say. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. This is so fun. Thank you. Thank have, you. Have a great day. Thanks again to my sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.